everybody's turning Habakkuk. And this time, since we just finished chapter one, we're going to start in chapter three, two. Okay, sorry, two. We'll do two. All right. Everybody turn to Habakkuk chapter two. Let me pray real quick, and then we'll uh, we'll get going. Okay. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are at work in the world, even when we can't see uh, the work that you're doing, even when we wouldn't even understand it or believe it you still continue to work out your sovereign plan. We're thankful for that. Proud this in your name. Amen. All right, so question is, when we were in chapter 1 last night, who had all the questions? Habakkuk. What were some of the questions Habakkuk had when we started? Uh, he asked God, what, what, why is this happening? Yeah, why is this happening? Why is there so much evil and you're not responding? Okay. And what was God's big answer, his first answer? Yeah, he's raising up the Chaldeans. I'm doing something you don't understand. I'm raising up an evil people to come in and punish my people. Okay? So then the question is, what did Habakkuk say after that? What was kind of his response to the answer? Fox? He asked, like, how... What's God... What God's going to do about the Chaldeans once they had taken over... Yeah, basically he says, well, God, I know that you're holy. How can you use evil for good? How can you use someone who's evil to punish someone who's more righteous than them? That's the question. So look at the end of chapter one. Who was talking when we finished? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Did God answer that question yet? Um, Not yet. No, that's what we're doing today. So look at Habakkuk chapter two, verse one. Because Habakkuk says, I stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. So Habakkuk asks these questions. God, how can you use an evil people to do your purposes? And then he says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for an answer. And look, he's waiting. He is ready. I will stand on my guard post, station myself on the rampart. So the question is, if someone's going to be like a watchman or a guard, are they like paying attention or are they just like sleeping? They should be awake, paying attention, watching, right? Not like hanging out in the corner playing Fortnite, right? Watchmen should be awake, ready for the answer. And here, Habakkuk says, I'm not asking God a rhetorical question. I'm not asking him something and I don't care about the answer. I'm asking him and I'm going to stand here and wait until God answers me because he needs to know what the answer is. Well, ultimately, what we're going to find out is in chapter 1, we found out God is perfectly wise, right? Well, in chapter 2, you know what God's answer is? How are you going to deal with evil? What are you going to do about this? God says, I am perfectly just, all right? So the title for this one is God of Justice, and your big theme at the top is God is perfectly just. God is perfectly just, all right? And here's the long one if you want to be the special kid, all right? God is perfectly just. And he will judge all of those who do not have faith in him. God is perfectly just, and he will judge all those who do not have faith in him. Alright? So we're talking about a God of justice. God is perfectly just, and will judge all of those who do not have faith in him. So, when we come to these first couple verses, here's your big point number one. Ready? Big point number one is the certainty of God's judgment. The certainty of God's judgment. Do you think God's going to judge? Maybe, maybe not. Yes, definitely true. The certainty of God's judgment. So verse 1, 
Habakkuk is standing up on the ramparts, on the fortifications there. He is ready to hear the answer. Now, does that mean he was actually literally standing up on the wall waiting for God to talk to him? Maybe. Probably not. Probably just means he's, that's how his, he feels. That's how he's, he's acting, because he is ready for the answer. He's watching until God will answer. All right? So then we get to that verse 2, and it says, Then what happened? Habakkuk 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied. The Lord replied. We finally get our answer. The Lord answered and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. All right, so what does God tell Habakkuk to do? To write it down. Write down what I'm about to tell you. Why? Why would you write something down? Fox? Because the human memory isn't exactly perfect. Okay, easier thing to say, so you could remember it. Got it. Okay. Just keep a record. Keep a record. So you threw 2,000 years later to study it. Yeah, so it'll be around for a while, so we can be here. Otherwise, we're like, hey, what y'all want to talk about? Okay. Yeah, anything else? What's the end of that verse say? End of verse 2. Record the envision and inscribe it on tablets so that... I got patience. You guys just... What? He who hears it may run. He who hears it may run. Somebody tell me what that means. Not Fox. Taylor? Okay, that's an option. So that when they read the the judgment, they would run away. Okay. Yeah. They run to repentance. Run to repentance. All right. None of you are right, but this is great. Good talk. Okay. So the enemies would run away. Okay. So someone can deliver it to other people. Hey, there we go. Ding ding ding. Fox gets the clip. All right. So. That's, that's the reward for everything, right? Isn't that how it works? Alright, so he says, the one who reads it may run. I want you to write it down so that you can give it to people and they can run and spread the word that this is going to happen. Alright? Make it plain. Literally, he says, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. Inscribe it means, like, make it really plain. Big, simple letters so that everyone can understand it. Alright? So, he's going to record the vision that God gives him. And just so we're clear, like, God answers, and God says, hey, you should write this down. And God says, hey, you should write this down and make it really obvious. When we talk about what God says in the Bible, there's some passages that are hard to understand. But big picture, is God hard to understand, or is he pretty clear with what he wants us to do? It's pretty clear, right? God's not mumbling and whispering, and I don't know what I want you to do. God says, do this, and it's in the Bible. So when we're like, I don't know what I should do, we should read the Bible because God tells us what we should do, right? God is very clear. So verse 3, here he's going to tell him a little bit more about the vision. He says, Habakkuk, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Remember, we called this big point the certainty of God's judgment. God says, my judgment is coming. Might not come today, might not come tomorrow, but it is for the appointed time. It's for the future. In Daniel chapter 10, it says the vision pertains to the future, talking about the one that God gave Daniel. And then in Ezekiel 12, 25, uh, that vision, he says, it will no longer be delayed for in your days, O rebellious house, I'll speak the word and perform it. So when God says this, he says, just because it's not happening right now doesn't mean it's not going to happen. 
It's going to come. It's going to come at the time in the future when I say it's going to come. And it says, it will certainly come. And then look at the very end of, of verse 3. He says, though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. You know when this judgment's going to happen? On the dot when God says it should happen. It's not like, oh, God says it was going to happen at 9, and it's like 9.04, 9.05. Pretty soon we can all just go home because I guess nothing's happening today. No. When God says something's going to happen, it happens exactly when he wants it to happen. One of the commentaries says, The reference to the end seems to signify not only the coming destruction of Babylonia, but the broader fulfillment of the Messianic judgment in the fall of Babylon the Great. You guys remember what book of the Bible talks about Babylon the Great and their fall at the end? Yes? Okay, uh, well, actually, that's, that is an answer. Good job. What's the other one that I was thinking of? The right one. Anybody else? What's a book that talks about all what's going to happen at the end? Revelation. Revelation. Okay, you get to Revelation 17 and 18. talks about Babylon the Great. It's kind of a, a picture of all the evil in the world. And Jesus is going to destroy it. Babylon will fall. So, here, when God tells Habakkuk the vision is for the appointed time, it's for the future, does he mean Babylon here? That's super exciting, but you're paying attention to me, right? Okay. I'm, I'm exciting. God's, God's word is exciting. How about that? All right? Okay, so is God talking about Babylon coming to destroy Israel right now? And then he'll judge them? Yeah. Is he kind of also alluding to when Babylon's going to fall and all of evil will be punished when Jesus comes back? Yeah. He's kind of got a double thing there. Okay? So here, God says the vision is for the appointed time, it's for the future, but it will certainly come and it will not delay. Dr. Bailey said all history is under his control and unfolds precisely when it suits God's purposes and precisely how it desires, he desires it to occur. So the question for you and me is, if God is so clear with what he's told us, he's very clear to Habakkuk, he's very clear to us and, and the rest of the Gospels and the Epistles and all the things that we're supposed to be doing, the question is, what are we going to do about it, right? If God's given us his word, he's told us what we need to do, how do we respond? What's the right way to respond? Obedience? Trust? Faith, what God has told us to do. Here's another question. God is about to tell Habakkuk, or he already did tell Habakkuk, he's going to raise up an evil people to come in and punish them. What if God told you, hey, I'm going to bring somebody bigger and stronger and they're going to come beat you up? Would you be happy about that? No. What do you think you might want to do when that person comes along? Maybe hide. What else? Throw something at them. Okay, throw something at them. Blast them with a 12-gauge. 12-gauge, nice. I'm not trusting you with anything. <laughs> Retreat. Retreat. So you might run away. You might fight back. You think your heart attitude would be like super happy and joyful and like, oh, this is what God wants. No. What might you be? What might you feel? Angry. Blaming a jerk God. Yeah. Blaming God for what's happening. Is that how we should respond? Maybe not. Maybe we should actually trust that God knows what he's doing because God's perfectly wise and God's perfectly just and he's doing what's right. So how about, let's just get really personal here. How about when one of your friends is not very kind to you or your brother or sister or your parents? Are you the person that's going to go out and get revenge? Are you going to be mean back to them? 
Or maybe you can trust what the Lord says, that forgiving is better, and you can trust that he'll take care of it in the end. That sounds harder. I think I'd rather just hit my brother back. Yeah. It's amazing. Christian life is not easy, but it's very simple. We just have to trust God that he will do what's right in the end. All right? So big point number one was what? The certainty of God's judgment. Okay? Is God's judgment going to come on the Babylonians? Uh, yes. The answer is uh, yes. You all can just say yes. God will judge his enemies. Okay? Big point number two, the necessity of our faith. If you don't know how to spell necessity, you can just make it up. That's fine. All right? The necessity of our faith. Big point number two, necessity of our faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. What does it say, the proud one? What's wrong with him? I'm going to keep asking you questions, so you better have your Bible open. Verse 4, the proud one, what's wrong with him? His soul is not right. right. Literally, it means his soul isn't straight. It's all broken and crooked and twisted. It's like that word perverted we saw when justice comes out upside down. This guy's soul is not right. It's all twisted. In Isaiah 13, 11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Do you think God's totally fine with proud people? The haughty ones? He's good. That's fine. He loves that. Think that's true? Please, somebody say no. Okay. God does not like proud people. God is opposed to the proud, we read in James chapter 4. Okay? So here it says the proud one, his soul is not right. What does that mean? God's not happy with him. God is not okay with his status, with the way that his soul is. And so the, the Bible knowledge commentary says, then comes the key clause, the righteous will live by his faith, and it sparkles like a diamond in a pile of soot and dirt. In the midst of God's unrelenting condemnation of Babylon stands a bright revelation of God's favor. Because on the one side, you have these proud people, the ones who their soul is not right before God. But then, suddenly, God says something really encouraging. He says, the righteous will live by his, what? Just say it. Faith. Faith. The righteous will live by his faith. Now the question is, are you righteous because you're so good? No. Why are you righteous? Who makes you righteous? God makes us righteous. Okay? How does God make us righteous? He declares us just. He says, I have declared this person to be right in my eyes. Based on what? What's the answer? Righteous lives by his faith. God says you can be right before him based on your faith in someone else. Where does our faith have to be? In Christ. Christ. And the fact that Jesus was perfect, he died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, and if we actually legitimately have faith in him, God looks at that and declares us righteous. But there's a second aspect to it, right? Because the first one is that initial justification. God declares us righteous based on our faith. Okay? Genesis 15, 6 Abraham believed in the Lord, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Romans 1.17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then it actually quotes Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. 
But there's another part of it. Because faith isn't just a one-time thing, right? You're like, oh, yeah, one time when I was nine, I was like, yeah, I believe in God. And bam, done, forever. I don't have to do anything else the rest of my life. I can do whatever I want. No, faith doesn't work like that. Faith is a one-time event that leads into a whole lifetime of something, right? Faith is a whole life of living before God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes this passage from Habakkuk, and he says, My righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He says, Faith doesn't just last for a moment. Faith is a whole lifetime of living the way that God calls us to live. So, this whole chapter, we're going to talk about the certainty of God's judgment on proud people. So look in verse 4 again and tell me, what is your option to not be under God's judgment? If God's going to judge the proud people, what's your choice? Verse 4, there's another option, isn't there? Trey? To be the righteous one. You can be the proud one who his soul isn't right, and God's going to judge that person. Or you can be the righteous one who lives by faith. So the question is, which one are you going to be? It's an easy answer, I hope. Alright, look at verse 5. Let's flesh this out a little more. God's talking about this proud person. His soul's not right within him. Wine betrays the haughty man. Okay? Wine... If you drink too much wine, it just brings out all of who you really are on the inside. Okay? You don't get to cover anything up, and it shows how proud these people are. It says, he doesn't stay at home, he doesn't rest, he enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death never satisfied. He said, his anger and his pride, and he wants more and more and more, he's like the grave. How, do you think um, when people enough people have died, then cemeteries are going to be like, hey... Uh, we're full, so nobody else can die anymore. Y'all just keep living forever. Is that you think that's going to happen? Probably not. Okay, so the grave doesn't care the, how many people have died. The grave is never satisfied. Okay, the grave is happy for everyone to keep dying over and over and over again, and it'll just fill up. Right? Grave is not satisfied. Oh, all right, we hit our quota. Six people have died today, so nobody else can die. You guys will just stay alive. It's not how it works. Instead, it's never satisfied. And here. The, the proud people, the Babylonians, they're never satisfied. They just want more and more and more. It says he gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all people. They just wanted to keep conquering and keep conquering and keep conquering and destroying and killing because they wanted more and more. Uh, the commentary says, Like some hideous monster, the grave devours the nations, and Babylon opened wide her insatiable jaws to devour all peoples. But the evil nation would not continue unpunished because God's judgment would fall. So, verse 4 again. The righteous will live by his faith. Dr. Bailey said, The righteous exercise faith by putting their trust in God and his covenant promises. In contrast to the self-reliance of the arrogant, they are relying on God to solve the deepest problem of their lives and not on any input of their own into the situation. So the reality is, guys, this is the most important thing we're talking about all week. You can be a proud person, and you can be under God's judgment because your soul is not right with God. Or you can be the one made righteous by the blood of Christ, who's turned from their sin, trusted in Jesus Christ, had faith in Him, and God will declare you righteous and give you the strength to live a life of righteousness and faith. 
But those are your only two options. You don't get to say, well, I'm not like a super proud person, and I don't really want to live like fully like, you know, real Christian faith. Like that sounds hard, boring. I don't think that'll be fun. I'm just going to be kind of here in the middle, and God will be okay with me. No, no, no. God says very clearly you have two choices. You can either be not right with God, or you can be righteous. And the righteous one is the one who lives by faith in Jesus Christ. God is perfectly wise, but he is perfectly just. He is not leaving all this sin alone. So big point number one. Somebody tell me. Tell me. Certainty of God's judgment. judgment. Is God going to judge sin? Is he going to judge your sin? Yeah. Either on the cross in Jesus Christ or on you in eternity in hell. Those are your choices. The certainty of God's judgment. God will judge sin and he will judge the Babylonians. Number two, the necessity of our faith, right? Because if you don't want to be the one under God's judgment, the proud one, then you have to come to Christ in faith. Big point number three. You ready? The reasons for God's judgment. The reasons for God's judgment. And then, after this big point number three, reasons for God's judgment, I'm going to give you five reasons, okay? Maybe A, B, C, D, and E, if I remember. Okay? We'll see what happens. But before we get to the first reason, the reason for God's judgment. Look in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Yeah. Right in the middle says, uh, even mockery and insinuations against him and say, woe to him who increases what is not his. That word woe, W-O-E. Does anybody know what that means? Hit me with some knowledge. What you got? Like remorse. Remorse? Yeah, that's actually not um, not bad. It's kind of, it would, I'm guessing it would kind of be used in like a warning or a threat. A warning or a threat? Okay. So. Woe is me. Woe is me. Yeah, you don't know what it means either. You said that. All right. Like pity or deep sadness. Yeah. Okay. Pity or deep sadness. Yeah. It's kind of like like we don't say this anymore because you know we're cool modern people, but they used to say alas, right? Like it's like it's an exclamation, but it's an exclamation, yeah, of kind of sadness and pity, but also like you said, like a warning, like this is not going to go well for you. Okay? It'd kind of be like if you if you did something really bad and your parents said you are going to get a major punishment. Woe is you. Okay? They're telling you this is not going well for you. So God has five woes against these people in this chapter. We're going to see that word come up a bunch. And he's saying you are under judgment. Isn't that beautiful though? Because God told Habakkuk, hey, I'm going to solve the problem in Israel, in Judah. I'm going to bring in these people to punish him. But he says, remember, back in this chapter 1, verse 11, they will be held guilty. See, Habakkuk was worried, wait a second, if you're going to judge our sin, but then you're going to bring in more sinful people, you can't just leave them. You're a holy God. You can't tolerate sin. Your eyes are too pure. And he says, no, no, I'm not tolerating sin. I'm punishing sin, and then I will punish sin again. I will be, they will be held guilty. Back in Genesis chapter 15, when God tells Abraham, this is, this is a fun prophecy, God tells Abraham, your descendants are going to get taken captive. They're going to be go and be slaves. Where did, where did they go be slaves in for 400 years? Just say it. Egypt. Egypt. Okay? Your, your descendants are going to go be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but God promises Abram before that ever happened, I will judge that nation whom they serve, and they will come out with many possessions. See, when God prophesied that the slavery in Egypt would happen, 
he also prophesied the exodus and all the beauty of, of the restoration to the promised land. It wasn't like God was leaving them hanging. And so here we have woes of warning. Okay, But here, this is the key. Listen closely. This is what Dr. Bailey says about these woes. He says, these woes are a warning to all who are like the Babylonians in their conduct, and that is a warning still in effect. Rebellion against God is not just a matter of ancient history. Do you hear that? Rebellion against God is not something that could used to happen and can't happen anymore. It still characterizes the human race, and the consequences of it remain what they always have been. So here's the key. When we're walking through these five woes, these five warnings against the Babylonians, I don't want you to sit there and think, man, those Babylonians, they're bad people, man. God better get them. No, I want you to sit there and think, how am I acting like these people and I need to turn from my sin and trust in the Lord? Okay? So, we are just as possible to be involved in some of these sins as they were, and we need to be careful to fight against those sins and to turn back to Christ. Okay? So, uh, I gave you big point number three, the reasons for God's judgment. Here we go. Here's our first one. we got five reasons. Number one, letter A, sinful pursuit of possessions. Oh my goodness, I can't write this fast. This guy keeps saying words. Sinful pursuit of possessions. Basically, they cared too much about stuff. Okay? In fact, they cared so much about stuff, they were willing to kill for it. Verse 6. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, mockery and insinuations against him? Woe to him who increases what is not his and for how long, and makes himself rich with loans. They keep stealing things from other people. Verse 7, will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. So verse 7, look at that. It says, your creditors will rise up suddenly and those who collect from you, they will awaken. Basically, the Babylonians would come in, they would kill people and they would loot all their stuff and take all the plunder with them, right? They were like pirates on land, okay? They would come in, destroy everything and take whatever they wanted. Well, God says, just so you know, at some point it's going to flip. The script is going to flip over and your creditors, the ones who you took stuff from, they're going to come back to collect. And this is funny. Look in verse 7. It says, those who collect from you, it's actually, the word means people who shake, okay? It's like when that really big guy, you know, like they're coming like, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to take all your stuff. And they're like, uh, you with what army? And then the big guy comes walking out from behind everybody and then he picks him up and he's like, Give me all your money. Okay, that's the, the idea. The intimidator, the guy who comes and he's going to collect. Okay, that one is going to come on the Babylonians. They thought they were the big, bad, ruthless conquerors. God says, someday those who collect from you, they will awaken. And indeed, you will become plunder for them. Okay, and so the first thing that we have uh, God has against them is that they're pursuing possessions. And look down at verse 8. It says, because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Okay? Bloodshed and violence. You are willing to kill to get what you want, and God will judge you for this. So, for you and me, do we care too much about stuff? Are we sinning to get what we want? In our hearts, are our hearts filled with greed and covetousness? Are we willing to cheat or to steal or even to hurt other people to get money or things? We need to be careful. God judges people like that. God says, you are in a sinful pursuit of possessions, of things. 
Alright, so first reason for God's judgment, they sinfully pursued possessions. Second reason, B, a sinful pursuit of protection. Okay, a sinful pursuit of protection. So first they went after possessions, now here they're after protection. So verse 9, woe to him, warning to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many people, so you are sinning against yourself. He says, you get evil gain. You are taking things from other people, but look why. Right in the middle of verse 9, to put your what? To put his what? House. House. Nest, mine says. It's like they're building a nest, but they don't want it to be down on the ground where everybody can get to it. They're trying to get away from people. They're trying to be protected. So they say, we're going to build our nest on high to be delivered from the hand of evil, of calamity. They're trying to use what they've stolen from people to build these safe houses, these fortresses, so that they would be protected. But look at verse 10. God says, you've devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off so many people. You are sinning against yourself. Okay? We think, hey, you know, I'm, I'm racking up all this money and, and stuff. I'm going to build me a house that's really safe so no one can come hurt me. And he says, you don't understand. You're not helping yourself by doing this. The more that you sin against me, the more that you hurt other people, you are sinning against yourself because I'm going to judge you for this. You are putting yourself in harm's way because you're putting yourself in God's way. And so, verse 11, he says, your houses are not up for this. The stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. He says, it's almost like your house is going to scream out like, this guy is a really bad idea because he's building me to protect himself from God and God's going to destroy the whole thing. Okay? Even the house, even the walls and the stones and the rafters are crying out. You guys remember... Um, Back in Genesis chapter 4, uh, Cain and Abel, right? And uh, Cain killed his brother, and then God came asking, right, what happened to Abel? Do you remember what happened? Uh, one of the things that happened is he said, I don't know, what's going on? And God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Does God mean that literally Abel's blood was screaming? No. It's an idea. That the blood was a witness against Cain of the evil thing he had done. Same thing here. God says, your houses that you're building to try and protect yourself from other people and from me, they are a witness against you that you are evil and you will be judged. Alright, so here's the question. Number one, are we defined by greed and covetousness and against trying to get too many possessions? Number two, do you just care? Is the, is the number one thing you want in this life an easy life? Comfort, protection, being safe, not having to worry about stuff. We need to be careful. If we sinfully pursue protection and comfort over God, God will judge people like that. All right? Third reason. So we had possessions and protection and now sinful pursuit of prestige. Somebody tell me what prestige means. Thoughts? Sort of like prestige is like honor or like hiring in society yeah um, that's, that's pretty I think good it kind of goes with having like a lot of things or being known to be really smart or something yeah it can like fame right honor glory like you said okay so sinful pursuit of prestige so look at verse 12 
God is now judging them for pursuing that sinfully. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. So what are they doing in that verse? What's the action they're taking? Two of them. Kind of the same thing. They're um, basically making their towns and their cities evil. Okay, so they're building a city and founding a town. How many of you would like to own your own city? That'd be super cool, right? You're like, that's a lot of maintenance and upkeep, you know? That's what my wife would say. But that'd be cool. You're like, hey, I own this island. Stay off my island. All these people, they work for me. In some sense, that sounds pretty cool, right? Like, oh, man. Uh, what, what do you do for work? Mm, I own New York. Oh, okay. Right? That'd be crazy. But here, they're building cities. They're building towns. How? They're building them by ne- being nice to people and positive motivation and taking care of each other. You can look at the verse and tell me what they're doing to build these cities and towns. Taylor? Uh, Bloodshed and violence. Yeah, that's a really bad way to build a city. We're going to kill everybody and we're going to take all their stuff and we're going to build a city on top of it. So no, no, no. You're trying to be cool. You're trying to be famous and have your own city by hurting other people. Verse 13 Isn't it indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? All right, look at the end of that verse. I want you guys to tell me what that means. Peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing. What does that mean? What is God saying to them about their cities? That all your work is going to not, um, it's not going to stay around long. Yeah, exactly. Jeremiah 51, 58, God says it this way. The peoples toil for nothing, and the nations become exhausted only for fire. What's the idea? You know what's going to happen to your city in the end? It's going to burn. So don't put too much stock in your city and your town that you're building. You should not sin to get those things, because those things will ultimately benefit you nothing. But if their stuff is all going to burn away, what's going to last? Look in verse 14 and tell me. What's going to last? What's going to last the test of time? Way past the time our cities are burned. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. He said, you want to invest in something? Don't build towns by hurting other people. It's all going to burn. It's all going to go away. You want to invest in something that's really going to last? It's really going to benefit you? You need to know me. You need to know the glory of the Lord. And it says, the glory of the Lord... It is going to be as the waters cover the sea. The, the waters literally overwhelm the sea. It is covered completely. Zechariah 14.9, it says, There's coming a time at the end, the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, in his name the only one. Just so you know, there's a lot of people in our world that don't know who Jesus is, or even if they know, they don't care, they reject him. There's going to come a day on this planet, maybe soon, where every single person on the planet will know exactly who Jesus is and that he is in charge. You understand that? It's happening. It's going to come. And at that time, the Lord will be king over all the earth and his name will be the only one. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the entire earth. You want to invest in something that's worth having in the end? How about you know Jesus better? That might actually be worth something. Bible Knowledge Commentary, it said the wearisome toil of a whole generation of Babylons provided just a little fire and ended up as a heap of ashes. 
but God's everlasting glory will fill the entire earth. All right, so let's talk about you and me again. Are we the kind of people that are going after accomplishments and glory, trying to be in charge of things, trying to look good in front of other people, trying to impress people? Is that what we're after? Are we willing to sin to get something to look good? Or maybe we should be the kind of people that we love when God gets the glory for something. We love when God gets praise for something. We love when people say, hey, this is really great. You're doing a great job. You say, thanks. God's been really kind to me to let me do this. Amazing, right? That would shock a few of your parents. You can work on that. We can't sinfully pursue this prestige, this glory. Instead, we need to pursue God's glory. All right, so number... What reason? Four. Thank you. Letter D. There we go. Sinful pursuit of pleasure. A sinful pursuit of pleasure. And I, I get that that's kind of a broad category, but there's a lot going on in these couple verses. So that's as good as I'm going to get. All right. A sinful pursuit of pleasure. So verse 15, it says, Woe to you who are making your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. So the idea is these people were, they were so evil, they would get other people drunk so that they could be involved in sexual sin. But look in the middle, it says they mix in something into their drink. What does it say they mix in? Right in the middle of verse 15. Venom. Venom. What is venom? What? Snake. Yeah, from a snake, right? Some kind of a poison. Well, does venom make you drunk? No, venom kills you, okay? So the idea here is they're not just doing something, oh, this is fun and partying. No, they're actually hurting other people to get what they want. Verse 16, God is not happy. He says, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. You yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. He says, don't think that you're going to get away with this. You're drinking right now some kind of wine or alcohol or something. Someday you're going to have to drink what I have for you to drink. And this is it. Ready? Jeremiah 25, 15. God says, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand. When God says, I'm going to make you drink a cup, he's not giving you like strawberry kiwi juice or whatever we had to drink for breakfast. Okay? When God gives you a cup to drink, it is wrath and judgment. It's God's punishment coming on our sin. And the, he tells the Babylonians, you think you're all having fun drinking wine now? I'm going to give you something to drink that you're not going to like. I'm going to give you the cup of my wrath. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 17 now. Here's the other part of this pleasure. It says, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Okay, so here's another piece. One, they were using uh, wine and alcohol to get drunk and involved in sexual sin. That was one way they were pursuing pleasure. The other way they were pursuing pleasure, apparently, is they were going on these crazy hunting trips. They go to Lebanon, and it says they destroyed Lebanon, and they devastated the beasts. They went in, and they took all these people's stuff. They went and hunted all the animals. They probably burned down some of the forests. Why? Just for fun. Just because they wanted to. And it says, because of bloodshed, human bloodshed, so they're hurting other people there, and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think God cares about these people doing violence, shedding blood, 
says violence done to the land and to the town and to its inhabitants. Why does that bother God? He's a perfectly right God. Okay, he's perfectly just, and that's against his law. Okay, what else? Maybe a little more personally. Why does God care that you hurt other people? Because the only thing he hates is sin. Okay, he hates sin. Because he created everything. So if you're harming something that he created, and I don't know. Whenever somebody breaks something that I have, it always makes me mad. Yeah, right? So back in Genesis, we find out that people are made in the image of God, right? We are like God in some ways. We are God's creations. But not just people, but everything is God's creation, right? Everything that he's made. And so it's interesting. This little phrase here, it says, the violence done to the town and all its inhabitants. Literally, it says, all those dwelling in it. Okay? It's interesting is that phrase shows up again in Psalm 24, 1, where it says this, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Why does God care that they're fighting and killing each other? Because they're all owned by God. God cares because they're his. And these people are destroying what he owns. So, you and me, are we the kind of people that will do anything for pleasure? To do what we want, to have fun. Are we the kind of people that we will make lots of excuses and we will justify a lot of our actions and attitudes so that we can pursue whatever lusts that we have in our heart? We can't do it. We can't. God judges those who pursue their own pleasure over pursuing Him. We can't take advantage of others. We can't make excuses. We can't pursue our own pleasure. We only pursue what God desires. All right, fifth reason for God's judgment. Wrapping up here. Fifth reason for God's judgment. A sinful pursuit of philosophy. A sinful pursuit of philosophy. All right? Verse 18, he says, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. So what sin is, is God getting after here? What are they doing? What? Worshipping other gods. Worshipping other gods. Worshipping idols. And he says, what use is it, what profit is it when you carve your own idol or a false teacher makes an image? And look at verse 18. It says, its maker trusts in his own what? Skill. His own skill. His own handiwork. His own creation. You know why a little idol doesn't help you at all? Because you're the one that made it. So it's not even as good as you are. It's what you'd made. Okay? It's your own skill, your own creation, something that came from you. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! And to a mute stone, Arise! And that's your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all inside of it. We cannot trust in these idols, these things. Why? Because they're not alive. They can't do anything for us. They're just wood and stone and gold and silver. Jeremiah 10, 14, it says, The molten images are deceitful and there's no breath in them. And this is scary. Psalm 115, 8, God says, Those who make, Im- make idols, those who make them will become like them. You're going to become as dumb as that little wood thing that you're bowing down to if you keep pursuing that. You guys remember in 1 Kings 18 when uh, Elijah is on Mount Carmel and uh, he's 
battling with the prophets of Baal, and they're like, oh, our God's better. And he says, no, actually, the real God is better. Verse 26, it says, they took the ox which was given them, they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. And they said, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they made. Can you imagine this? These, like, 400 guys jumping around the altar, screaming. Came about at noon. Elijah mocked them and said, hey, uh, call out with a loud voice, for, for he's a god. And maybe he's occupied or gone inside. Or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. Make sure you really yell loud. So they cried with a loud voice. And they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And when midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Why? Because it is a false god and idol. These guys look like idiots, and they hurt themselves all day because they were trying to worship something other than the one true God. But look in our passage, verse 20. How does the chapter end? Talking about these idols, how they're dumb, they're mute, they're stone and wood, they're silver and gold. There's no breath in them. But what does verse 20 say? But the Lord, but Yahweh, the real God, he is in his holy temple and let all the earth be silent before him. God is in his holy temple. Psalm 11:4 says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. When you understand who God is and what God is like, you won't have a little smart remark. You will sit there in silence because God alone is perfectly holy. It's really silly when we're reading this verse and it talks about people bowing down and, and telling a piece of wood, awake, and a, and a stone, arise. And we're like, how do these people, how are they so stupid to worship these things that can't help them? But you know, one of the reformers said that the heart is an idol factory, right? We got idols all over the place in our lives. They're just not little statues of gods. Maybe it's money, maybe it's fame. Maybe it's your friends liking you. Maybe it's doing good on a test. Maybe it's being a little bit taller, or a little bit prettier. Maybe it's that person liking you or that person leaving you alone. There's a lot of things that we worship and go after that are not the one true God. We got to be really careful to put away our own self-pleasure and to pursue God alone. The reality is, guys, that God alone is holy. He alone is worthy of praise. He alone is the one who's perfectly just. Dr. Bailey finishes, he says, Even through the violence and pride of Babylon and her kings, the Lord was working out his purposes, and when it pleased him, he called them to account. God used them, and he used them for a time, but when it came time, God held them accountable too. Write down Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is when God comes and he tells who he is to the people. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You're like, man, this guy is great. He just forgives whatever, whatever we do. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. 
Guys, God will judge sin. He is perfectly just. So the question is, are you the proud one who your soul is not right within you and you're pursuing all these things, the possessions and the prestige and everything else, your own pleasure, or are you going to be the one that humbles yourself before Jesus Christ and say, I need a savior. I need someone to save me from my sin. I want to be made righteous by my faith in Jesus. You see, guys, God is perfectly just, and he will deal with your sin and with my sin. And he'll either deal with it through Jesus Christ on the cross, or he'll deal with it in us for eternity. The last commentator says, For Habakkuk, this message was clear. Stop complaining. Stop doubting. God is not indifferent to sin. He's not insensitive to suffering. The Lord is neither inactive nor impervious. He is in absolute control. In his perfect time, Yahweh will accomplish his divine purpose. And Habakkuk was to stand in humble silence and expectancy of God's intervention. So, the question was, how long, O Lord? Why does it have to be this way? God says, I'm working. I'm working in a way you don't even understand. I'm perfectly wise. And I am going to bring judgment both on these people's sin and on the Babylonians' sin. Because I'm perfectly just. So now the answer is, what do we need to do with that? How do we respond? Well, we'll find out this afternoon. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are holy and just and that you always deal with sin. But thank you for Jesus that you've made a way for us to to have our sin dealt with and still enjoy eternity with you. Pray that you would bless our time today. Amen.